All right, hey, if you've got a Bible, open it to Nehemiah chapter 12. That's where we are. We are finishing up a series of messages that we've been doing since August in Nehemiah. It's a pretty obscure Old Testament book. It's uh, about midway through the Old Testament. By the way, as Reynolds mentioned, look, you don't have to know a whole lot to, to be part of us. And so if you need to flip to the table of contents to find it, um, that's okay. In my Bible, um, it's on page 407. Uh, but uh, it's, it's about midway through the Old Testament, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, then Nehemiah. But chronologically, it's actually at the end of the Old Testament. We're going to work through that. But while you're finding it, let me mention a couple things to you. Number one, um, there are some CDs out on the back table. And this is a CD of a message that was preached by a pastor whose name is Matt Chandler. He's a young pastor in Texas at a church called the Village Church outside of Dallas. And this is a, uh, he's, there's several guys that I listen to, Reynolds and I listen to um, real regularly. Um, I've mentioned a couple of those guys. I'm, I, I love John Piper. He, he's been very, uh, very influential in my life. Uh, an older pastor that's been around for a long time in Minnesota. Uh, there's a younger pastor by the name of Matt Chandler, and he pastors a church outside of Dallas. And uh, he is probably the best young preacher of my generation. And I just have tremendous respect for his gifts and for his theology. And he preached a message a couple weeks ago about marriage and sanctification in marriage. And I thought I want everybody that is in the tribe, part of Crosspoint, that is married or that wants to be married, which I guess is just about everybody, to pick this CD up. We made CDs. I want you to listen to it. I want you to grab it. And then we put uh, the website there, his church's website. I'd love for you. Look, we are in, a, we are in an age of resources. Uh, there's really no excuse not to expose yourself to great theological, rich teaching. Um, hopefully, hopefully I can contribute to that a little bit. But um, there's some guys out there that are tremendous, tremendous communicators of God's word. Um, and this is one of them. This is a guy who he is so gifted. I mean, he could read the phone book and um, he would keep my attention. But he, he actually has great theology as well. Pick up this CD and uh, young husbands. Hear me on this, young husbands. Listen to this CD with your wife right next to you. And midway through, when you start to cringe and feel convicted, and you're mad at me, thank the Holy Spirit, because you needed it. And I need it too. Um, this is a hard and beautiful message about marriage, which I'm coming up on 15 years. And um, listen, I mean, the, the title of the message is Sanctification in Marriage. If you haven't noticed, marriage is like the hardest thing in the world to do. It will expose your weaknesses, and uh, you, will, you will be humbled. Can I get a north-south on that? Amen. Right on. And so we need this. We need this. So um, pick that message up. The other thing I want to mention to you as you're opening up to Nehemiah chapter 12 is that next Sunday, we've got today and then two more weeks that we're going to be in Nehemiah. We're going to wrap up. We're going to do chapter 12 today. Then we're going to do chapter 13, which is an awesome chapter. At the end of the chapter, Nehemiah's kicking people, cussing at them, and pulling out their hair. <laughs> I mean, how, how good can you get this? actually in the Bible. Maybe, maybe not cussing. I, I put that part in there. But um, So we're going to do Nehemiah 13 in a couple weeks. And then uh, the second week of December, we're going to do kind of a wrap-up of Nehemiah, some of the great themes of it. But next Sunday... Um, we're going to take a break out of Nehemiah, and I'm really, really excited about this. I'll, I'll be here, but the, uh, there's a ministry in town that is headquartered in Columbus, and it's called Hope Givers International. In fact, our very own John Battistini, raise your hand, John, uh, works for Hope Givers, and Hope Givers is a ministry that was started about 30 or 40 years ago by Dr. M.A. Thomas, who is a native of India, and his son Samuel Thomas. And they have started orphanages in India and really all over the world. They have over a hundred orphanages. There's thousands and thousands of children that uh, are in their orphanages and in the churches that they have planted in India. They're now moving to West Africa and now into the Western Hemisphere in Haiti. And we're entering into a partnership with Hope Givers and maybe going to do something this summer by way of a missions trip that um, we're finalizing the details on. I'm really excited to tell you about in a couple of weeks. But Dr. Samuel Thomas, the president of Hope, Giver, Hope Givers, is going to be here next Sunday to preach to us and tell us about Hope Givers. Listen, I had lunch with uh, Dr. Thomas on Friday, and I just, you know, sometimes you just get that sense that you're in the presence of a great man. And uh, I had that experience on Friday. This is a man 
and his father who have gone through tremendous persecution. He spent some time in India in his home country uh, being persecuted for the cause of Christ political persecution and uh, his family lives here in Columbus he goes back and forth to India on a regular basis John Battistini is his right hand man and it's a tremendous ministry Um, the tendency a lot of times on the Sunday after Thanksgiving is to just kind of lay on the couch and have turkey sandwiches Um, do that but just carve out some time in the morning to come next Sunday and hear from this man who is doing a tremendous work for the gospel a tremendous work rescuing orphans, primarily in India and all across the world. I can't wait to hear him share with us and for our partnership to really grow legs with Hope Givers. All right? All right, I think that's it. All right, let's do this. Let's pray, and then I'm going to read through Nehemiah 12. If you're new here today, I want to tell you a couple of things. As Reynolds really did a great job just introducing what we're all about, we have a value here at Crosspoint. We believe we're we're Deep, deeply committed to the Bible. We're Bible people. We're young, and we're, I guess you could say somebody wrote me an email today saying thanks for being kind of you know hip and cool and in a nice environment. I mean that's cool, but that, that's not really what our shtick is. We we're deep. Did I pronounce that word right? We are deep. You got to be careful with that word. We are deep. Like we're deep Bible people. We care deeply about the scriptures, and we have this value that we should preach out of the scriptures. And so a couple months ago, Lord, the Lord laid it on my heart to preach out of Nehemiah, which we're going to get into today. It's an Old Testament book. But there are some chapters in Nehemiah that are full of Hebrew names. And um, we have this value that the scriptures are important. In fact, in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says that all scripture, meaning even the list of names in Nehemiah, are breathed out by God and profitable for training and teaching and reproof and correction so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so um, most smart, wise pastors would skip over these boring chapters. I'm not smart and wise. Um, So we're going to read through Nehemiah 12 pretty quickly. There's a couple points, though, that I think are very important for us. So if you're uh, visiting with us today, um, this is actually the fifth time that we've gone through a long list of names. And you may be saying, why is that guy just reading them? Couldn't he just skip over them? This is kind of boring. Yeah, I know, but we're kind of committed to it. So let's go. Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to read quick. I'm going to read them loud and strong. And I'm going to throw in sort of a Hebrew sounding H every now and again to make you think that I can pronounce it. And then we'll, we'll make some points. All right, let me pray before we get into Nehemiah chapter 12. Lord, thank you for this book, for babies, for musical instruments. For that man that wrote, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Lord, we care absolutely nothing about religion or outward appearance. We're very aware of Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, where he called them white-washed tombs. Where the outside of the cup was clean, but the inside was rotten. And so we care very little about religious heirs that we care nothing about it we confess that we are very much a people in process many of us in this room have received jesus as our king not all of us very likely and we don't care about getting through a sermon or a few songs or a service so that we can be happy with ourselves and then go home we we really need you lord to meet us here today We need you to meet us as we read through what would seemingly be a boring chapter in the Old Testament. We are people that have been very, very, very abundantly blessed by virtue of the fact of where we were born in America. We have ice. We have air conditioning. We have umbrellas. We have restaurants on every corner. We breathe in the air of self-absorption and our hearts are numb to your providence and your goodness in our lives. And so today as we read a chapter about a group of people that gave you thanks appropriately so before Thanksgiving, God, we need you to break up the fallow ground of our hearts and we need to be pressed today by your Holy Spirit so that we would 
have thankful hearts. And God, if there are any in this room, and I suspect just by just by uh, virtue of how many people are here, that there are some that may not know you as Savior and King. Would you, as Peter says in his letter, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding Word of God? Would you take a heart that walked into this room dead, and would you make it alive? And Lord, thank you for those little kids out in the hallway. We're so thankful for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Catching you up on Nehemiah, where we are. Remember, <clears throat> Nehemiah, the, the theme of our, of our work through Nehemiah has been that we're talking about a people on mission. And what is happening in the Old Testament, in fact, it's the storyline of the Old Testament, is that God is choosing a people. He moves upon a man named Abram and eventually changes his name to Abram because things had gone bad. I mean, the, the whole story of the Bible is God and his goodness created mankind. He created all that is. And as the, the crowning achievement of his, of his creation, he created us. And we, by nature and by our own very choice, we rebelled against God. It's been happening since Genesis chapter 3. Remember, people were talking about the good old days. It's, it's all been downhill, basically, since Genesis chapter 3. When our parents, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God, and we, by nature and by choice, have done the same thing. But God, in his providence and in his sovereignty, did not leave us without a way back to him. And so he chooses a people through this man named Abraham, and he promises them several things. He promises them a piece of land, which is now Israel, the modern-day nation of Israel. He promises this man Abram, even though he was very old and he had a wife that was very old, he promises him many children. In fact, he promises them, he promises them more children than are, are stars in heaven. And then he promises them blessings so that through Abraham and his descendants, these people, he would bless all the peoples of the earth. And these people then begin to populate the earth, and God forms a nation, the Hebrew nation, through this man, Abraham. And then they begin to rebel and reject God's goodness. And it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a peaks and valleys story, the Old Testament is, between God being good and the people walking with him for a while, responding to his goodness, and then rejecting his goodness, and then suffering the consequences of walking away from God over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. But God never gives up on his people. He woos them back to himself. He sends them prophets and leaders to lead them out of captivity. And he even uses their captivity and foreign pagan kings to work his redemptive plan in them. And eventually he raises up a man named Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Ezra to lead the people back to this promised land so that they would be in this place and they would begin to be the people once again, that God had called them to be because, remember the first promise, God always desired not just to make it about one people, but that through these one people, he would bless all the peoples of the earth. And then eventually, this one people, through that people comes the Messiah, the Jewish man, Jesus, who becomes the savior of all the world. But so he's forming these people so that through them, he can bless all the earth. And they were in deep rebellion. They had been captured by a foreign pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar and then several others that followed him. And they were in captivity. And then this king Artaxerxes, who's not a Jew, he's not a believer in the God of the Bible. And, but yet God moves on his heart and he allows. He's the, he's the captor. He's the, he's the foreign king who's in charge. Uh, he's the slave owner, so to speak. And he lets... Through God moving on his heart, he lets this man named Nehemiah go back and rebuild this all-important city of Jerusalem so that God's people could go back there and be the people that God intended them to be so that through this city and through these people, God could bless all the nations of the earth. And that's what's happened up to this point in Nehemiah. They've gone back, even though they were still in captivity, and that's going to become important as we read. They're still not exactly where they should be, but kind of back where they should be, doing God's work in this less than perfect situation. They're rebuilding this city so that God can work through them. You may be saying, great story, Brad. The only thing I need now is a flannel graph, and you know, you to do the little Sunday school story, what does it have to do with us? Well, the story of these Old Testament people is our story today as a church 
too. God is calling us as a people, as believers in Jesus, wanting to bless us, so, not so that we would be cul-de-sacs, not so that we would just be dead in, so that our salvation would terminate on us, but so that through us, through our hard marriages, through our parenting, through our gatherings, through our church, through us struggling to preach the gospel, not silly little self-help messages, through that God would bless all the nations and all the people of the earth. In our situation, all the people of Chattahoochee Valley. So there's a great parallel. So, but it's hard, right? Because it's not easy to do that, to be that person. And it's certainly not hard. It's certainly not easy for the people in Nehemiah. They had to face exterior opposition. There was people that wanted to destroy them, foreign uh, neighbors. And then they felt, faced interior dissent. Look, church folks are mean and nasty. They bite and they talk about each other and they gossip and they, they fuss. Not us. <laughs> Actually, well, don't get me started, but we're, we're all, aren't we, aren't we all like we're jacked up and it's hard. We got, we face opposition from the outside and opposition from the inside, but even still God works with these people and even still God works with us. And so they now have rebuilt the wall. They're back in the city. The main project that they had to do through this man named Nehemiah was rebuild the wall of the city. They've done that. And now in chapter 12, as we're coming to an end, they are basically inappropriately. So I didn't plan it this way to be the, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. But they're basically holding a big prayer and uh, praise and thanksgiving service to dedicate the wall that they have rebuilt to God. And so that's where we are in Nehemiah chapter 12. All right. First 27 verses or so. Our first 26 verses are some names, so buckle up, stay awake. All right, here we go. Nehemiah 12.1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. Why are we reading these names? You don't have to click into them. Just, just as I'm reading these names, I want to re, just reinvigorate our hearts with this notion that like God works to regular people. Again, we've said that over and over again, but there's just... Seemingly random, anonymous people listed in this book. And again, I've told you that someday when we get to heaven, a lot of Christians are going to go running up and saying, like, Moses, seriously, dude? Like, when you were at the Red Sea, I mean, really? Like, wow. What was and Moses like, yeah, man, it's tough being like the, the big guy in the Old Testament. People are going to be in the Abraham line just wanting to meet him. I'm going to be in Sariah's line saying, dude, you made it into Nehemiah chapter 12. How crazy is that? And he's like, I know. Like, seriously? Like, can you believe that? I mean, I was just a regular dude just working a job. And all of a sudden, I'm in the book, man. I mean, so think about these names. Think about the seemingly anonymous people. Like, not everybody can be a great Superman Christian. Not everybody can preach like Matt Chandler, who took a church of 150 people to 8,000 people in a couple of years because the guy, when he speaks, gold comes out of his mouth. Not everybody can be nationally known like John Piper. Not everybody can be like Dr. Samuel Thomas and his father who, who have started hundreds and hundreds of orphanages and seem to be blessed with, with incredible influence. Most of us are anonymous people, like these names listed in here. So give thanks as we read them. Yeshua, Shariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shekaniah, Rechum, Meramoth, Ido, Ginathoi, Abijah, Midjamin, Madai, Bilga, Shemai, Jerob, Jediah, Salu, Amuk, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Yeshua. And the Levites, verse 8, Yeshua, Benu, Cadmiel, Sounds like a candy bar. Cadmiel, Kisherebiah, Judah, and Madaniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. And Bakbukia and Unai and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Yeshua was the father of Jochim. And Jochim, the father of Eliashib. And Eliashib, the father of Jodah. And Jodah, the father of Jonathan. Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan, for having a good name, easy. And Jonathan, the father of Jedua, and in the days of Jacoam were priests, heads of fathers' houses of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, Ezra, Meshulam, Amariah, Johanan, of Maluchi. Evidently, there were some Italians in the neighborhood there. Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Haram, Adna, and Merath, Halkai, of 
Edo, Zechariah of Ginnathon, Meshulam of Abijah, Zikri of Menamin of Modai, Piltai of Bilgai, Shamua of Shemai, Nathan of Jerob, Matani of Jedai, Uzai of Salai, Kalai of Amok, Eber of Hilkai, Hashabiah of Jedi, Nethanel. Verse 22. In the days of Eliashib, Jodo, Johanan of Jedua, the Levites were recorded as the heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, and the chiefs of the Levites. Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Madaniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon, Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Jacob, the son of Jeshua, son of Jezodak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and the scribe. That's our last long list of names in Nehemiah, and I am very thankful we are done with him. Yeah, all right, here we go. All right, let's keep going. Now what's happened is they've listed these people. Now they are getting together for a Thanksgiving worship service for what God has done for them and with them so far in allowing them to come back in less than ideal situations and rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Verse 27. And at the, listen to this, I'm going to read through this quickly, then I've got three points to make at the end. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And so what they're doing is they're gathering everybody, the whole, like everybody, a whole, it's like a homecoming service to celebrate what God has done and allowing them to rebuild the wall. 28. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba, Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. They're taking this serious. Like this isn't just, they're just walking up saying, yo, hey, let's get together. You got a tambourine? I mean, they're preparing for worship, just a lesson to us today. Verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. Listen to this. This is really interesting. Two choirs. Now picture in your mind. You know, choir one, choir two. Orange robes, purple robes. I mean, you know, whatever. We got, we got two choirs. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. <laughs> and, and that's... I mean, the dung gate is aptly named. That's not just a strange Hebrew word. It's the place where they would take all the refuse. They had a whole bunch of gates around the city, and some of them they would bring the food in, and then some of them they would take all the garbage and waste out, and that was the dung gate. And this choir got, they drew the short straw. And so they're, they're going, one went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. Verse 32, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Madaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relative Shemaiah, Azareel, Milalah, Gilalahmai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hananiah, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe, went before them. 37. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Okay, so we've got this choir, and they went to the dung gate, the city dump. Think Chautauqua Road. That's where they went, and that's where they started to sing. Verse 38, then there's the other choir. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people. Notice Nehemiah strategically places himself with the other choir. Leadership has its privileges, I guess. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. Okay, so we've got one choir that goes to the dung gate. And the other choir goes where they're baking blueberry muffins. (laughs) Here's the point. I mean, sometimes you just got to do Stinky, dirty jobs for the sake of the mission. Like, I would rather be in the Blueberry Muffin Choir than the Chautauqua Road Choir. But, you know, we all do our part. 
right? We all do our part. Some Sundays we've got to work the nursery. And, and I think that God, we've got to change diapers and we've got to sweep and we've got to do dirty stuff. But I think, I think God most, most prominently, most beautifully shows up when the people of God do the dirty work with joyful hearts and good attitudes. I mean, how easy is it to praise God when you're smelling blueberry muffins? It's easy. But how beautiful is it when, you, when you're at the dung gate to praise God anyway? Wow. Verse 39. And above the gate of Ephraim and the gate and by the gate of Yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And I and half of the officials with me and the priests of Eliakim, Messiah, Minamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets and Messiah, Shema. I thought this was the last. I guess I was wrong. There's some more names here. Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzziah, Jehonan, Malchijah, Elam, Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great, listen to this, verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy, with the women and children also rejoice. And I love this line. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. All right, let's finish it out in three quick points. Verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests. And for the Levites, according to the field of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and they were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. 47. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for Aaron. All right. We've been down in it. We've been flying at ground level reading that chapter. Let's do this. Let's back. Let's let's raise this plane up to about 30,000 feet and see what's going on here. And I've got three very quick points. Remember what's happening here. These are people who are still under the captivity of a foreign king. These are God's chosen people, the Jews, the Hebrew people, chosen by God, undeniably chosen by God. These are the same people that God has worked through miraculously. He has has parted the Red Sea. Loaves of wonder bread have fallen from heaven. Birds are falling over, letting the Jewish people cook them. God is providing for them in miraculous ways. Yet even though God had done all of those things, they find themselves in a situation where they're in captivity. And now God is still working through them, but they're not quite in a perfect situation. But they're in the city that God wants them to be. And now they've rebuilt this city and they're giving God thanks. So these are a people who are kind of where God want them to, wants them to be geographically, but everything is not as it ultimately should be. And here's point number one about these people, they gave thanks. They gave thanks while they were still very much in process. We need to give thanks. You can put that up there on the screen. We need to give thanks while we're, we're in process. Have you ever had that thought? I know I think this a lot. That thought kind of like, well, I'll be able to really like be used by God when I achieve this or when but those stages they come and it seems like there's another there's another stage you know I thought remember as a young man I thought gosh I'll really be able to you know serve God I'll really be able to live you know kind of sin free when I'm when I'm married and then I got married (laughs) and not because of my wife but because I'm still very much in process. And then I thought, you know, when I, when I, when I get out of the army and when I, when I maybe become like a youth pastor and I get into ministry, then I'll be able to really serve God. And then I got out of the army and I got into ministry and it was, it was still like I was, it was still a struggle. And then I was on staff at a church and I thought, well, when I, when I Get my own church when I can start my own church and do it my way. Then, then it'll all be great and I'll, I'll be I'll be really able to be used by God and give Him thanks. And and then I 
started my own church and uh, and then I thought, you know, when okay, now we got a church and now when a hundred people come, it'll be yes, we'll get yes, and then a hundred people come and then I'm like, well, then when we when we get two hundred people, then we'll really be moving and then two hundred people come ah, and you know what I'm thinking now? When we get a building. Yes, like, yes, we'll, we'll be able to do so much. And you know what, someday, hopefully soon, we'll get a building. But we're like, we're, we're so in process. If we waited to be in a place where we could really think we could be used by God and then give thanks to God, we would, always, we would die waiting. Israel is still in captivity they are still under the thumb of a foreign pagan king they they are god's chosen people god has done miraculous things for them in the past and now and we'll talk about this here in a second because of his providence because evidently he's deemed it this way he doesn't just break them free from the babylonian captivity and now from the Assyrian captivity and the Persian captivity. He doesn't just reach down and snatch them like he snatched them out of Egypt's hand and parted the Red Sea. He evidently is letting them go through something. And even though they're in the middle of a less than ideal situation, they, they, still, they still give God thanks. Are you in the middle of a less than ideal situation? Maybe it's right in the middle of that that God wants you to just kind of lift your eyes up. Like I am a chronic belly button gazer that's what i do that's what we do oh if we could just if i were ah i'm still no if i really stepped out then i mean who am i to who are any of us there's something beautiful that comes on a person or a group of people when even though they're in the midst of a less than ideal situation they give thanks to god they give thanks to god The second point is very much related to that. The first is that we give thanks while in process. The second is that we give thanks for providence. I've been thinking about this a lot these last couple weeks as we've been working our way through Nehemiah. As you talk about the the history of the Old Testament, I just referred to it. You know, early on in the Old Testament, God reaches down. He sends some plagues to Egypt to punish Pharaoh, he raises up a man, he opens a body of water, he lets his people go through, he closes it back on the foreign army that was chasing them, he lets birds drop from heaven and loaves of bread drop from heaven, he feeds them, their clothes don't wear out for 40 years, the Bible says, he provided for them miraculously, but yet, you'd think if God's going to put that type of investment in somebody, that he would, that he would sort of just... I mean, you would think that he would kind of hit the fast forward button and just kind of get him to where he wants him to be. But God is providential. And here's what we have to understand about this word providence. And if you don't hear anything today, listen to this, because I think this is the most difficult thing to wrap your brain around as a person is that God is providentially in control of all things. What does that word providence mean? It doesn't, providence is not just, oh, wow, I just happened to get a good parking spot at the grocery store. But providence means, and it's this deep and rich and essential doctrine that comes from the Bible. Providence means that God is the creator and ruler of all things. And that nothing outside of his, nothing is outside of his control. Now, I realize that brings up some difficult questions well if nothing's outside of god's control then what about evil and what about difficulty and what about struggle well in a way and this is this is i mean if you think about this long enough it'll make your there's a limit to our ability to understand this because we are finite beings the bible says in isaiah that his ways are higher than our ways his thoughts are higher are higher than ours as high as the heavens are above the earth so much higher is god's ways and thoughts than ours but the bible presents us a paradox that seems to contradict here on earth, but does not contradict in God's mind and in his way. And that paradox is, is that God is in control of all things to include evil and struggle and sin, but is never in the scriptures written or shown to be culpable or guilty 
for sin and bad things that happen. And you may be saying, how can that be? How can God be providentially in control of all things, behind all things in some sense, allowing, permitting, sending all things in some sense, but not be culpable for them? Well, that's the tension that the Bible leaves us with. Proverbs chapter 16 says some incredible things about the sovereignty of God. It says that God has created everything for a purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. God speaks to the nation of Israel in Isaiah. In Isaiah, in the 43rd, 44th, 45th, and 46th chapter, he's speaking and he's saying to these pagan kings and to Israel, he's saying that I create everything for its purpose. I create light. I create calamity. I have called the end from the beginning. God is providentially in control of all things and in a ununderstandable way. In uh, I'm making up a word, but you know what I'm talking about. In a way that you that we cannot understand on this earth, God is in control. And we can go two ways with that. Number one, it can cause us great despair because we think that God is somehow behind bad things that happen or culpable for them. And it would cause us to move away from God. Or it can cause us to move towards God because we realize that everything has its purpose. Everything has its purpose. Even even terrorists flying planes into buildings. Even children in India not having parents, even the worst tragedy, everything has its purpose. The alternative view, I think, is far more despairing. That God is somehow some weak deity up in heaven with his hands tied, and because some people didn't get it together, he's saying, gosh, I, Holy Spirit, I would have sent you, but Israel messed that one up. Jesus, I, I would have had you do something there, but, but Brad didn't preach right, so shucks, golly, we can't do anything. Is that the God? I mean, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is far more, far more powerful, far more in control than we can even imagine. And that is hard to grapple with. Why would God call a people out of Egypt, open up an ocean for them, drop food from heaven for them, and then a couple hundred years later, let them be gunked up with some knucklehead named Nebuchadnezzar? Why? Well, we're left with several options. Either God is not in control, and we're in this dualistic world where Jesus and Satan are in a close basketball game, and Jesus hits a free throw at the end and we barely win, or God is in ways that are beyond our imagination and comprehension in control of all things. In control of all things. Ephesians 1 verse 11 is a verse you need to know. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. You put it up on the screen. It says that in him, meaning Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's in the Bible. Now, you, you, we can doubt the Bible. We can struggle with that. We can, we can talk about the inerrancy and the validity of the Bible. We'll, we'll, I'll have that discussion with you all day. I'll cancel Christmas, and I'll stay here until we get that one down. Look, that's legitimate. But if you're, you're a Christian, I mean, it, to, under, to grapple with that question is a legitimate gate that every person has to walk through. And that, we don't invalidate that at all. We'll, we'll walk with you. We'll pray. I'll talk to you for as long as the day is long about whether or not we can trust the Bible. And I've preached several messages here about I think that we can. But once you pass that hurdle and you call yourself a Christian or you're struggling with, with what it is to be a Christian, this verse has spectacular ramifications for Israel who's under the thumb of Artaxerxes, or you and me who are messed up in process, wondering how God's showing up or what he's going to do. In him we have obtained an inheritance. This is past tense, have. We have obtained. My mom's an English teacher, and occasionally she listens to our podcast, and I butcher the English language, and she gets mad when I use the word whack. But, I mean, 
she, they did raise me in Southern California, but obtained is past tense, right? Okay, good. Obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. All things. Either all things means all things, or it doesn't mean anything at all. He works all things, whether it be the captivity of Artaxerxes, whether it be Hitler rising to power, whether it be whether it be George Bush or Barack Obama being elected, whether it be a greedy Wall Street CEO rising to power and bilking people out of thousands and thousands of millions of dollars, whether it be terrorists flying planes into buildings, whether it be me struggling with sin, whether it be you going through a difficult patch in your marriage, whatever it is, whether it be a rebellious teenager who you can't get your mind around, whether it be a a person who is dying of cancer who may, God may heal them or he may let them die, whatever it is, God is providentially in control of all things. And all things either, either means all things or it means nothing at all. Now, we can, we can go two ways with this. Like I said, we can back up and say, oh, God is somehow harsh, or we could say he's good. Because maybe there's more to this life than just 70 or 80 years here on this earth. Maybe, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that, that the momentary and light affliction that we are going through right now is working in us a far more eternal weight of glory. And that we should look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. God is providentially in control of Israel. And listen to this next sentence. And in his sovereign goodness, for Israel and for you and me, sometimes he lets us go through things that are still under his control that may be terrible for the sake of the glory of his name and for our eternal good when you can come to wrapping your heart around that and receiving that truth it will transform the way you live on this earth so we give thanks for the process we give thanks for providence but none of this means anything unless we can give thanks for jesus why is nehemiah important Why is the Bible even important? Why are we gathered here today? Look, Christianity and church life can become incredibly moralistic and self-helpish and pragmatic and useless unless we remind ourselves of why we can even give thanks, and that's because of Jesus. The Bible is very clear that every person, little Noah Monroe Almond, and every person in this room is born as a sinner. And is separated from God. Again, why would God allow that to happen? That's his providence. God, in his gracious goodness and control of all things, has deemed it to allow to bring about a world that would fall so that he could rescue it. Because evidently he deemed it to be the most self-glorifying thing he could do. And in response to the fallenness that has hit all humanity, he has sent his son Jesus to receive the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, for our fallenness. And the Bible is very clear about this. That those who would repent, that means to turn from sin and trust in Jesus, it is to them and them alone that God gives new life, a new heart. And he redeems them, he renews them, he restores them once and for all. And he preserves them and he causes them, even in the difficulty of their life, whether it be a person that's already a Christian. I mean, he, he, he saves you and he keeps you and it doesn't get perfect in for the next 50 years on earth. He saves you and then through the rest of your life, you struggling to live for him. He gets glory in that process and then eventually he brings you home to be with him forever. That's the clear witness of scripture. But. It doesn't just happen because you live in the South or because you grew up at First Baptist or Second Methodist or Third Presbyterian or Fourth Assembly of God or Fifth. My dog is holier than your dog, Temple. The 
doesn't come by good works or church attendance or helping old ladies across the street or work in the choir. It comes by believing in Jesus alone for salvation that ultimately gives you reason to give thanks. And when you put your trust in him and your faith in him, you become a new creature, a new creation. People say, oh, that's harsh. Why would God only allow one way? Actually, that's gracious, isn't it? Isn't it gracious that God would invite all to this one way? I mean, what if there were 14 ways and I chose the 15th way? Because there's, there's thousands and thousands of ways out there and they all seem. What if I chose the one that seemed, or what if it was based on good works? I mean, what if, what if the mystical number was 978 times you did a good thing and I did it 977 times and God is up there saying, oh, one more bag of groceries helped across the parking lot. And Brad, you could have been it. But he bases it all on Jesus and Jesus' perfect work on the cross. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. There's two people in this room. One, there are people that are already Christians. And you need a like I do, you need a beautiful reminder of the providence of God. You may be going through a terrible situation, very difficult trial. You need to give thanks in the process. You need to give thanks because God is providentially in control of all things, to include my mother-in-law's cancer, to include the economy, to include the trial in your marriage, to include the heart of your rebellious teenager. God is in control. And for that, we can give him thanks. That's you. That's, that's probably most of us in this room. The second group of people, you need to understand that you can only give thanks through Jesus, for Jesus. And if you have not repented and believed in Jesus, you need to do that today and right now. That knocking on the door of your heart is the Holy Spirit. And what you need to do is just trust in him. We're not going to have you recite a prayer, fill out a card, make you raise a hand, have you come down and testify at the end. Look, you you have faith in Jesus. You repent. You believe. Repent means to turn from self-reliance and trust. And you believe, Jesus, I don't know much about the Bible. I don't understand much of what is going on here. But I know that the way that I have walked has been for myself and away from you. And I need you. You trust in Jesus. If you need help doing that, come on, talk to me. We'll hash this out afterwards. But you need to do that today. And if you haven't, then just a simple prayer, and I'll pray it. Just a simple heartfelt prayer will help you receive Christ. And what happens then is the Holy Spirit comes in and he makes you new and you become a new creature, a new creation in Jesus. Well, let's pray. Lord, as we finish up today and as we read through this amazing chapter, God, I am just struck by how good you are and how much more you are in control of all things than I can even imagine. Lord, for those of us that know you as our Lord and our King, God, would you cause us to lift our eyes above ourselves? Would you put steel in our spines? And would you help us see that you are providentially in control of all things? And that as that passage in Ephesians says, you have worked all things according to the counsel of your will. And God, if there's somebody in this room today that's doubted Christianity or doubted Jesus, God, I know that feeling. I've been there. I walked that road for the first 18 years of my life. God, would you, would you right now Open the door of the heart. Would you make their heart come alive to the truth and the beauty and the grace of Jesus? Would you help them understand that what, what saves them is ultimately not their human goodness, but Jesus' goodness and perfection while he lived on this earth and then his substitutionary death on a cross where he bore my punishment and their punishment and then he rose again in victory over that death and sin and that only those 
who put their trust, they acknowledged that that is true, that Jesus did that, and then they put their confidence, their faith, they lean into that. They, they, put, they, they stake their claim on the fact that Jesus' work on the cross is our only hope for salvation and that we must believe and trust in that. God, would, would you cause them to do that today? And I realize, God, that that takes faith. So would you give them faith? And I realize that faith is not the absence of doubt or wonder, but it is, it is trust in spite of that. And so would you help my friends here who maybe have never done that yet to do that today? Just by believing in you, saying, Jesus, I believe you. I trust you. Forgive me of my sins. Save me. Come into my life. Make me yours. God, would you do that as they just confess that and repent of their sin and trust in you? And God, then for the rest of us, would you, would you cause us, as I mentioned before, to be people of deep, deep thanksgiving? Not that goofy kind of sort of cultural... Christian goofy where we sort of check our brain at the door where we have to detach ourselves from reality and you know we just walk around with a little little phrase a little Christian phrase all the time as if everything's okay God we live in a broken world we're messed up people we're very much in process we're struggling to live for you God would you connect us to reality I mean when you when you cause these Old Testament Jews to praise you at the rebuilding of the wall. It's not like they forgot that they were still under captivity. So God, we don't have to be we don't have to be detached from reality and religious weirdos, but God, very much in touch with our situation and in the imperfection of our lives. You call us to give thanks to you. So God, let us do that now because you have deemed that to be a beautiful God-glorifying thing that we should do. So God, give us the great grace to be thankful thankful people today and then ultimately as that line in Nehemiah was said that joy was heard from far away God would you cause the life of cross point and the life of the people in this room would you cause would you cause the joy that comes from us and the thanksgiving that comes from us would you cause it to be heard from far away and would you draw people to yourself through it and I pray it in Jesus name amen